0: Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear, here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of God for the people of God. Our greatest biblical scholars note that there is a definite shift in the course of the book of Isaiah. Most marked, most clearly occurring in the beginning of chapter 40. They notice that there's a shift in context as well as the setting in terms of the events of which the authors write. In the first several chapters, the beginning of Isaiah... He is addressing issues that happened in the 700s BCE. In chapter 40, there is a clear shift to addressing the Babylonian exile, which did not happen until 587 BCE, some 100-plus years later. There's a definite shift in the tone. Early in the scroll of Isaiah, he is attacking the people. He's condemning them for their shortcomings. It's fairly harsh as you read through it. He is trying to get their attention. Calling them back to God. But then. At chapter 40. He begins to talk about comforting the people. And that God is saying to him. Comfort ye. Comfort ye my people. And it's a dramatic change. In the tone. Of what this scroll says. But now. There are other Bible scholars, as they look at that, that note that also this 35th chapter we just read seems to be out of order chronologically because it also deals with restoration and return from exile. It seems to be addressing the same setting that the chapter 40 and thereafter are addressing. And yet, we have it in chapter 35. We're going to assume that It's a little out of order chronologically and it really is addressing what has happened to the Jewish people when the Babylonians have come and devastated their capital and taken over their territory and taken their leaders as prisoners of war. But I think it's fairly difficult for us who grew up in the United States or have lived here most of our lives to understand The depth and the scale of what has happened that this scroll, this book of Isaiah is addressing. It's hard for us to understand because never have we had a foreign invading army come in and destroy and take over the capital. I thought it was ironic that as I was trying to write and finish up the sermon on Wednesday, it was December 7th. The 75th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And so if you live through that, perhaps you have a taste of what a nation feels when attacked. Or if you were alive on 9-11, another instance where we have a little bit of a sense of what it's like when somebody comes into your country and begins to try to destroy your people, and your institutions. But for us to grasp the full scale of what the Jewish people endured, we would have to imagine that an invading army came into Washington, D.C., destroyed the White House, destroyed the Capitol, destroyed the National Cathedral, took over the country, and took as prisoners of war all of our leaders and scholars and artists And deported them out of our country. That is something perhaps of what it was like for the Jews. It is difficult to imagine the depth of their pain and despair. I dare say just from the little taste of that that I got on 9-11. That if such a thing happened to us. If such a terrible thing ever occurred in our country. We would be a devastated people. We would be full of despair and grief. We would be wondering if there's any way to move forward. We might be asking, where is God? How could God allow this to happen? We would be struggling to make any sense out of it at all. And certainly there would be little or no room for hope joy in such a setting. So if we can imagine that. Then we see this stark contrast. When 2nd Isaiah begins to write. Isaiah trumpets how the desert will rejoice. Rejoice with blossoms, he says. Because there's going to be water aplenty in the desert. Did you hear how he wrote that? He says a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the holy way or god's way and the ransomed of the lord shall return and come to zion with singing everlasting joy shall be upon their heads they shall obtain joy and gladness and the sorrow and the sighing will flee away what a bold statement in the face of devastation and despair i mean the people have not come back yet The desert still is dry and dusty, and yet Isaiah is so inspired by God that he sees this vision and tells his people this is what God is getting ready to do. And he begins to describe it with these graphic and evocative images of a whole new day, a recreation or a restoration of all of creation. Listen again those first few verses. The wilderness And the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Or later, down in verse 6, he uses this image Then the lame shall leap like a deer. And the tongue of the speechless will sing for joy. For water shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool. And the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of the jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. He's painting a portrait of a land renewed And telling his people God is going to do this it's such a different feeling than the earlier parts of Isaiah so scholars point out these shifts refer to this section and those chapters after 40 as second Isaiah writing at a later time and yet still writing about what God is going to do for the people this is a day that is to come When God will make all things right. Second, Isaiah seems to have concluded that even though the people are conquered and the people are defeated and devastated, that God has not been conquered. And even though the people cannot throw off the yoke of the oppressor, that God can and must do this thing. He says they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. He's trying to help people hang on to faith, to believe that their God is still alive and at work in their lives. He says, oh, you're going to know when it begins to happen, because the blind are going to see, the deaf are going to hear, the mute are going to sing, the lame are going to leap. God is going to restore individuals. God is going to restore the nation. God is going to make a way where there appears to be no way. And therefore, this writer can conclude in that last verse we read that the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Isaiah is encouraging his people to wait with expectation. To hang on to hope and to trust in the Lord. That even though they don't see it yet, this day is coming. And in the meantime, he gives them this counsel, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. While they're waiting, Isaiah wants to empower his people to continue to believe and to have faith. Now, our nation has not been devastated like theirs. We have not experienced the carnage that created such grief and such weariness and such despair in his time. And yet, if you read the news or listen to it day to day, what do you hear? You hear of attacks and bombings and killings and wars and devastation in so many different places. I find that it's easy to become Worn down and weary hearing such a thing. So I begin to wonder about us needing a word of empowerment, a word of encouragement to continue to believe. It's so easy for us to slip into despair or depression when we see all of that going on. Or if we've experienced a particular grief or loss or blow in our own lives it's so easy to begin to wonder where is God and does God really care about us sometimes we could use a word of encouragement sometimes we could use a word of hope to remind us to trust in the Lord not too long ago I heard a fellow who grew up in Vietnam speak. He said he was there when the Americans were there. And when it became clear that the Viet Cong were going to take over and the Americans were leaving, his father said to him, we must go as well. And they escaped the country, made their way to the United States. He was a young man. He was able to secure enrollment in a university here in the united states and got one degree and another degree and another degree and now he is a professor here in the u.s but he still goes back to vietnam from time to time to teach and to learn not all the people he knew were able to escape so he still sees people he knew all those years ago But he told us about one particular friend of his who's a Roman Catholic priest who stayed in Vietnam to work and minister and has been there all these years. At one point he was arrested and put in prison for nine years, sentenced to hard labor. The person I heard speaking said on one of the occasions where he was back, they were talking about all that had happened in the intervening years. And he asked his friend how he felt about being in prison for that many years. Was he bitter or angry about his captors and how they had treated him? And he said his friend answered with a question. and I have put it in your outline. He said this Roman Catholic priest said to him, How can you be angry and bitter against those to whom God has sent you? to be witness and messenger of his presence and of his love. and I thought, what a remarkable perspective that in the midst of that kind of experience, to be able to see that God is at work and to feel the presence of God leading you to be in ministry, even in the worst of circumstances. He said the fellow went on to say to him, Remember Jesus died for Pilate and the high priest as well as you and me. In Advent, we began to look forward to a baby that's going to be born into our world and for us, but not only for us, but for the whole world, for friend and foe alike. And I wonder when I face disease and death and disappointment in my own life, if I can trust God that much. If I can believe that God is still at work when things, circumstances, experiences that I can see and touch are not working the way that I had hoped. Can I trust God even then to offer me joy? Will you trust God? To bring you joy? Will you trust God to walk with you even in the dark and difficult times? Advent helps us open the gift of joy. To trust that God is getting ready to do a new thing. To prepare our hearts and minds to celebrate the love and joy and hope and peace and light. That God wants to flood our lives with. But maybe you're you're having a great December. Maybe you're having a great year, and your life is already full of light and joy and peace. Well, then I offer you this question. Maybe you could ask yourself, could I offer joy to a neighbor through a gesture of kindness? Could I take someone some brownies? Could I bake some cookies and take them to a neighbor or a friend? Maybe I could send an email to encourage someone I know who is struggling. One of the great stories I got when I asked the people who had taken the prayer challenge to pray every day for these last six months on a certain focused topic or experience or relationship, one of the women wrote me back. In fact, she said this started before the six-month prayer challenge, but she's continued to make it a part of her prayer time. She wrote this. For over a year, I've been been sending friends in need, like people fighting cancer, someone experiencing the death of a spouse, or a spouse with Alzheimer's. I've been sending them a daily text or email of something uplifting. Sometimes it's a picture of a flower in the bouquet at the altar on Sunday morning, or a longhorn steer in a parade. Sometimes it is a funny saying I've seen somewhere that I think might brighten their day. But she said, my message to them is always the same. This is to remind you that no matter how dark the day may be, there is beauty in the world. There is beauty in the world. Praise be to God. Amen.